Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And my guest uh, this week is Andrew Hartz. Um, Andrew is a practicing clinical psychologist and the founder of the Open Therapy Institute, which we'll discuss. Um, He was formerly a professor in the clinical psychology doctoral program at Long Island University. And the way that I found out about him, other than uh, secret parties in New York, um, is uh, that he has published articles with outlets like the Wall Street Journal and the Federalist detailing some of his worries about the influence of uh, woke ideology uh, on his profession. Um, I thought it would be really interesting to talk to him about that and some other objections I'm sure longtime listeners have heard from me about his, his profession as a whole. So he's he's so agreeable. He's, he's agreed to come on and hear those objections. So um, welcome, Andrew, to High Noon. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to start out just with how you got concerned about ideological influence as a professional. Like, was there a particular episode or moment where you realized, like, this isn't just people's political perspective or, um, you know, something that is outside of the profession, but might actually impact their work as professionals? Yeah, I mean, I, I started my PhD program, I think, in 2013. And at that time, there was virtually, there's very little politics in clinical psychology. And I think, you know, it wasn't that long ago, but there was pretty much a consensus that it, a therapist inserting politics into a therapy session was bad care, unethical. You know, that, I think that was a pretty broad consensus. Um, and that started to change in 2014 and 2015 and then faster change in 2016 and 2017. And then it just kept escalating. And I think it got to the point where, um, you know, the culture in the field of being open and talking about wide range of feelings and wide range of thoughts, things started to feel more stifled. People started to seem like they're walking on eggshells. The, The whole tone of the field changed and politics went from being something that rarely came up to like weekly trainings on social justice topics that were often very aggressively delivered. Dialogue was not open. Agreement was essentially demanded. They were often full of hostility. Like it was just a dramatic change over the time I started my program to the time I ended it. Um, you know, I, like you, you think you've written a lot about this concept or, or spoken about this concept of splitting, which apparently and I would have no idea, but um, other than listening to you, but that is a key concept in a wide variety of uh, both interpreting different pathologies uh, in psychology and then different psychological approaches within therapy, different clinical approaches. Um, can you maybe lay out your argument about that and how you see that conflict, right, coming into the actual practice of clinical psychology, as opposed to, like, I I could see it being sort of theoretical if you're talking about societies, but then when you have somebody in a room and it's just you and them, like, they express a certain thought. Yeah. Um, If you, if your therapist abjures you as a bad person, I feel like you you, you really um, then feel like you must be a terrible person at your core. (laughs) Right. Um, or you just give up on therapy and, you know, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, okay, splitting, splitting is probably the most important concept in clinical psychology that people don't know about. 
Um, it's almost 100 years old. It pervades the field. It's a dominant concept from psychiatric inpatient units uh, to private practice psychotherapy. It's central to dialectical behavioral therapy, which is one of the most common therapies. Um, it's central to psychoanalysis. It informs couples therapy and families therapy and the treatment of addictions. It's everywhere. It is a central, central idea to numerous evidence-based therapies. So people, a lot of people have never heard of it uh, who aren't in the mental health field, but it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful idea. And essentially it says, thinking in all or nothing terms about things comes easily to people. And tolerating a mix of pros and cons and mixed feelings about people is hard and it's uncomfortable. And so this applies to how people feel about themselves, how they feel about other people in their lives, how they feel about groups of people, how they feel about issues. Um, so there's a kind of magnetism almost that pulls people to wanna to view people in all or nothing terms. And so an example of this might be with depression. Um, a lot of people that are depressed think that everything about themselves is bad, everything about their future is bad, everything about the world is bad, and it's all hopeless and nothing's good. And if you talk to somebody who's depressed and you try to say, hey, but you know, there's some bright spots, you have some strength, something like that, often they hate it. Um, it feels invalidating and threatening and uncomfortable, and they almost resist it. So that's, that's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because you'd think people would want to feel positive things about themselves as opposed to negative things. But it's actually, in the short term, easier in a psychological sense to be depressed and view everything as bad than to tolerate that there's a mix of like good and bad in your life and in the world. So splitting is this sense of framing everything in all or nothing terms related to an issue or relationship or yourself. And it comes out in all kinds of different ways. And it ends up being a really central part of a lot of psychotherapies. Yeah, immediately I have a non-political question, which is how do you maintain a sense of moral clarity without splitting? Um, Give me an it, example. It's very yeah. difficult. So like, I would think it would be very difficult to uh, maintain possible, but not, and not impossible, but like difficult to maintain, for example, the need for retributive justice. Um, if, if you are incapable of sort of, uh, splitting like people as, as wholly bad. And I, I, I know that, uh. I guess I'm relating it to the problem of evil. Right. And, um, and I also think, by the way, that it's, of course, a simplistic way to view anyone. I mean, one of the earliest sort of moral lessons I can remember learning from my family is, um, which, by the way, I have, you know, my, my family is half Polish, half Jewish, like suffered under both Nazis and communists, right? So in my family, um, so the point is no sympathy, right, in this direction. But um, I just remember being a kid and like going to some museum and like, sort of doing, a, 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 I was like, I don't know, six or seven years old. And I was, I was putting the thumbs down on like one of Hitler's speeches where like all these people are very 
you know, excited about this speech. And I'm just like simplistically saying like, boo, boo. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad got mad at me and he was like, all of those people, you know, thought it was great. And you have to understand that you could also be that person. And like, even, even Hitler is mm-hmm. not, you know, you have to be able to understand why this is appealing to people or you're not actually confronting the problem of evil right. in the world. Like, um, but it does seem like what you're talking about splitting is a natural human instinct to try to try to divide the world into things that are dangerous or evil and things that aren't like obviously can be simplistic in doing that. But like you don't want people who are incapable, um, not just along with their moral nuance, they become incapable, for example, punishing evil or fighting things that are bad because they're too concerned about always considering the ups, like the good pieces mm-hmm. of that person or that action. Um, yeah. And you have to use, people have to use their judgments. I mean, it's not like, Oh, like, you know, uh, sexually abusing children has some positive thing or something. I mean, it, I don't think there's anything positive in that. And I think there's lots of issues that you could think of where it's like, yeah, like, murder isn't good. <laughs> I don't think we need to sit around and think about the benefits of murder or something. Um, and there, there are other issues like, like that. Um, so it's, it's, some of it is judgment. Some of it is how you frame it. You know, um, if you're saying like, is the Holocaust bad? I think that's a pretty easy, you know, yes, it is. But like, if you're thinking about, um, you know, you could, you could frame um, complex moral issues in terms of like, w- why did it happen? And what were the complex social factors that contributed to it? Maybe there's more to flesh out there. But, um, but in, in therapy, that's almost never what's at issue. Um, it's like this person who, you know, had a spate of bad life events thinks that they're you know, irredeemably bad, even though they're a normal person, you know, or, um, or in, in narcissists to the opposite and think that they're, you know, can't tolerate acknowledging weaknesses in themselves. And so I think it's, I think most of what's actually happening in therapy and a lot of the splitting that you see is not at all about those issues. Okay. Um, so how do you see the, so how do you see like that splitting tendency that I assume we all have, right? Um, in, if you're sort of have certain pathologies, you might be more prone to it, but that seems to me like a pretty basic human instinct or construct of how we think, um, you know, how is an excess of that or, or a bad version of that applied in our politics now? Or how do you see it? Um, I see it in two, two ways. I think, one, um, I, I guess two main ways. Uh, the first is, I think that a lot, most institutions of American civil society have become political. They've been politicized. It, that includes mental health. I think it includes a lot of other areas of society. And they frame political issues in all or nothing terms. They only make comments in support of one side and against another and on a lot of on a wide range of political issues. And I think that's very dysregulating for everybody in society. And it's not, you know, if it's a school or a university or a media outlet, it breeds 
lots of anger, lots of conflict, lots of mistrust, because people know that most controversial issues involve risks and benefits and pros and cons, and they affect different values differently. And so it's very dysregulating when leadership at civil society organizations frame issue after issue in all or nothing terms. They only say good about one side and bad about the other. In, in education in particular, you know, I think that can lead, you know, if you get through K through 12, you get through college, you get through graduate school, and you've only heard arguments on one side of the spectrum, and you've never heard the other side of the dialectic, you've never heard that, or you've never been taught that as having any legitimacy. It's not just that you have a really distorted view of what's happening and these issues, but that you can become emotionally dysregulated, where you can't even tolerate having conversations about these issues that acknowledge pros and cons, because it's unbearable. And so I think that can really pull all of society to have these like conflict ridden enactments where we're not capable, like there's a difference between a conversation where I say, I have really strong views on this. I think my side has lots of benefits. It's got some costs, but it's worth it. This is the better path. And the other person says, well, I think mine has a lot more benefits than costs and I view mine. That's one type of conversation. Another one is mine has, is all good, no bad, and you're evil if you disagree with it. And I think what we've seen in the public discourse is it going more towards that second model and away towards the first one. People are losing their capacity to have discussions that talk about strengths and weaknesses. Um, there's another key way that splitting's manifested. I could go right into that now, it's, which is a little bit different. Um, and I think maybe more radical, but I think people split People are more likely to split when issues get really emotionally charged um, because the intensity of the emotions is difficult and it's hard to think clearly. And so people gravitate towards these simple all or nothing framings. And I think it happens, especially with identity politics where they frame, they only say bad things about one group and they only say good things about another group and they can't tolerate anything that deviates from that. And I think that this happens with you know men versus women sometimes i think it happens with white versus people of color sometimes i think it happens with lgbt versus heteronormative sometimes where people only say good things about one group and they might really idealize that group in really grandiose terms they never talk about a negative trait trend or dynamic in that group they can't tolerate it they think that's unacceptable the other group um, they attack and criticize sometimes viciously their oppressors, their privileged, their weak, ignorant, immoral, you know, whatever. And they think that saying that those groups have any strengths is totally unacceptable. So I think th that's another really common form of splitting it has to do with identity politics and framing groups of people in all or nothing terms. So what happens, um, when even the the people so i mean I, I assume you called your um your group the open therapy institute because you want people who are coming in to you know um to a therapist to be able to you know say various strengths for example if they were in race or in in you know sex-based differences or something to be able to say like i think like i think white men do X really well, right? right, right um, right. and and uh, 
to have the the ability to say something like that in therapy and not to be engaged immediately in a political struggle session or like in more the course of life, just saying, for example, this coworker did this thing. I think the example you used at one point was somebody coming to therapy and, and has like some resentment around the fact that his, his colleague had been promoted over him and suspects that um, affirmative action was at play because the colleague is black and the, the person going to therapy is white. Um, you know, is, I guess your, your objection here is that, that the therapist's, that are being turned out by the Academy now are not able to even provide a space in which to talk about that with somebody, even if they disagree with it. And even if, if, if they push back, right. By saying, are you sure that this is that issue, blah, blah, blah. But you're saying something more intense than that, which is that they're immediately hostile and can't hold in their head, like a sympathetic feeling to their patient with, uh, with this like splitting idea of like nobody could say or do these things um, um, without being ultimately evil or what? I think the splitting is interacting with mental health in in complex ways. And I'm not even, I'm not, I, I think in, we could try to flesh out what, what some of those are. My, my concerns around that are a little bit separate from why we wanted to found the Open Therapy Institute. I mean, I think, yes, I don't want to overstate the case, there, but there are really atrocious therapy practices that are spreading, where people are saying, hey, if the patient says something that you think is racist, you got to confront that and make the therapy about that. You have to insert race into every session. You have to insert gender ideology in it, into every session. You, you know, you're if you're a couples therapist, you have to treat through a feminist lens. There's stuff like that that is happening, okay? And I think a lot of this, a lot of people are having bad experiences. And there are a lot of therapists who are like, I'm not going to work with a Republican. I would never treat a Trump voter or, or things like that. So there are bad practices. But my bigger concern with the field is that there's so much bias in the education system and in the mental health field in particular that even therapists who are like, oh, I would never attack my patient for their view, that doesn't mean that they're clinically competent or skilled to work with patients who have diverse viewpoints, that they understand, for example, like what the experience of self-censorship is like, or what the experience of being ostracized or punished for your views is like, or what types of masculinity issues men might struggle with, or what a victim of anti-white hate might experience or what's, you know, or what somebody who's has orthodox religious views might encounter in a variety of places in their life. Like, I think they might in a lot of those places just have lots of blind spots or be uncomfortable or not feel, not want to be supportive or avoid it or be misattuned. So I think the, the bigger concern is that there's huge chunks of the country, lots of different populations of people that would come into therapy where they don't know where to find a clinically competent therapist who could understand them and work with their issue. And there's really nowhere for them to look. There's no, there aren't, you know, lots of clinics that are specializing in these issues. There's really nowhere for their, to, them to go. So we wanted there to be a place for people with those issues to be able to find an attuned therapist. And we wanted to kind of 
start to offer trainings for therapists to deal with those issues. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like a, a therapy for the canceled. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, in the sense. But, but if you think about it another way, I mean, a large majority of the country has at least one orthodox opinion. Most people have at least one thing where they don't agree 100% with the stated orthodoxy. And so therapists need to have some fluency with what those experiences are. And if they're uncomfortable or hostile or avoidant or just un or oblivious, they, they're, they're not going to be able to provide effective therapy to those people. Yeah, I guess I think of this as kind of similar to what's happening in the legal field where, uh, but th there there's just this, this hard check because there's nine people in black robes at the end of the day. Uh, and I'm very curious what will happen because the law schools aren't producing, forget for a moment about all of the other consequences of, of having this cultural revolution within the legal profession. They're not art. They're not producing people who can competently argue in front of an originalist court because they simply have no familiarity. It's a blind spot in their legal training, right? Kind of like what you're saying. They have no familiarity with even how to swim in those waters. So in a sense, it's kind of shooting yourself in the foot because they're, you know, the majority of the court now is either textualist or originalist. Like you need to be able to make those arguments if you want to win your cases, right? So, um, but, but in this case, there's not really that backstop of people with power. A lot of the people that you're talking about, um, you know, don't have that kind of, of, forget about legal, even like the kind of cultural power to be a backstop. So, you know, what, what, what is like, uh, what do you think is actually happening to folks who might have an issue and want to go talk to a therapist? Are they just like leaving therapy altogether or are they simply kind of having a, a sort of uh, gap therapy, like where you just try to completely excise a large part of your life and focus on something else. Um, I don't know. Like, what do you think is happening with, with those folks? Because I, I think about, for example, the parents of like detransitioner detransitioners, for example, there's so many of those stories where they right. couldn't find a therapist who wouldn't affirm. And obviously these are, these are young, often women, right. With, with, uh, you know, Matt, like they, they have a host of, of issues and they're having a tough time, like in their teenage years for a variety of reasons. Um, and they're just not able to find somebody who is not going to affirm even in various like religious networks or whatever. It's just so much part of the best practices now that there's right. no space for that. Well, the, the APA actually says that for kids who are questioning their gender identity, you should have therapy to discuss it. That's actually the official standard, but there's also a lot of feel there's, there's a lot of fear in the field that is saying, you know, that I think a lot of therapists are worried that if they push back or challenge or really do like a tough, you know, exploration with a kid that they're going to get accused of being transphobic or they're going to get sued or they're going to get attacked. And I think, um, and it's hard to know. And, and there's plenty of clinics that are just doing rubber stamp stuff. Um, so, but um, I, I mean, to your, to your earlier question, I mean, I do think um, a lot of people with unorthodox views have given up on the field. <laughs> they don't like it. They don't trust them. They don't think they're going to find it somebody 
who respects their worldview or their values or could really be helpful to them in that. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who self-censor in therapy and they go in and they're like, well, I'm just not going to talk about that part of my life. Um, what they're missing is that having like an important part of your life that you're just self-censoring through your therapy actually can be pretty disruptive to the process and to getting the type of change that you, people want out of it. Um, and then I think there, I think there's um, some people will just take a stab in the dark. And if you, if you see enough therapists, like maybe you'll get one who you can work with. Um, but it's like, there's no listing. Like it's, it's hard to find, um, you know, in a lot of places it's like, there's virtually no one who is listed, who advertises themselves as skilled with any of those issues. Um, I mean, is part of your ultimate goal then to provide a kind of directory or certification or something that can indicate to people like, <laughs> I feel funny saying this, but like, this is a safe space, right? Uh, yeah, for, yeah. for people who are, are, uh, you know, not marked at least completely in lockstep with the views of the sort of cultural left-wing views of the, the therapy profession at large, at least on average. That, that, that it's about openness. It's about being open to people who have a wide range of views. It's not like you have to be conservative on every issue. I don't think that would be good therapy either. I mean, in therapy, people have to have the ability to explore irrational and contradictory thoughts and feelings in a kind of unfiltered way. I think the process really depends on that. Um, and so that's, that's what we want. Just people who are open and committed to being open and signaling openness, wherever that is. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that we're, we're definitely talking about doing a certification. I would love to have a certificate that we offer to therapists who could signal that they're invested in being open. Um, I don't know about an online directory. I think the bigger issue is like developing those trainings and like to, to therapists. And on a lot of these issues that we're talking about, the clinical literature is thin to nothing. I mean, where you're thinking, you know, uh, I, one of the people involved in the Institute has written about men who have been falsely accused of sexual misconduct. That's like an experience that a lot of people have. But where's the literature on it? Where's the specialists on it? Where, you know, what, where are the papers on it? What do we know, need to know about working with that population? Um, and I think a lot of these issues are going to continue to be overlooked by most of academia. Um, so hopefully we can start to develop a literature, start to develop trainings, develop a certificate, and get more and more skilled therapists to work with these populations out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's... I was talking to um, somebody who, whose son went through that and uh, she ended up founding a group and the, the percentage of uh, falsely accused men uh, just in that sort of whatever, like group to share experiences who had attempted suicide and many of them because they're men actually, you know, succeeded in their attempts. Um, isn't that true that like women, women attempt it more often, but men follow through men more often. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, unfortunately there was like a high number of suicides, even in that small group. And then like the number of attempted suicides was, I mean, it was high. Um, 
So, right. I mean, it really did seem like a population that desperately needed uh, some way to process it, um, what had happened and, to them. Because in a lot of cases, they, it did destroy their lives. I mean, even if they won in court, like, it, it just completely right. derailed and, and their lives. And you, you look online and you find a therapist who looks skilled and you don't know that they're they're coming from the feminist orientation and they have a you know me too perspective on things and you know that can manifest later in the treatment um i think like and and even just understanding with that population like i i would guess i don't know because i don't i don't know hard literature on it but like i would guess that men in that experience have a high percentage of sexual dysfunctions or um or deep distrust of relationships, um, in addition to like stigma, isolation. I, I think that there's just a lot of different issues there that are worth understanding better so that therapists can do better work with them. And, um, and that's just one among really like dozens of groups that are basically entirely overlooked by the field. Yeah, it's interesting to me. It you're almost um, using a lot of the, like the, the leftist framework almost to talk about, you know, we have these underserved populations who uh, yeah. don't have the same access or, or uh, comfortable or com like level of comfort with, um, with this, this uh, service. Um, so now, now I get to uh, get into some of my objections to the, the entire thing and you can, you can parry them and tell me. Okay. That. I'll so, try my best. It's, it just, I've always been unconvinced from watching, you know, from the outside. I've never done therapy, but um, have had lots of friends who did it. Or I, I have never quite been convinced that spending a lot of mental energy thinking about your, um, your emotions or even your, uh, like, impulses or, or motivations is actually a happiness producing uh activity um i mean i could see it being helpful in sort of a limited way if you really don't understand where your motivations are coming from but it seems like spending too much time thinking about it actually produces the opposite effect in a lot of people where they end up just endlessly obsessing over um, characteristics of theirs or why they did this thing or that thing and it paralyzes them or it makes them um, you know, unhappy and it doesn't seem like it moves forward. Uh, so I guess one, one cheer for repression would be, how, <laughs> how do you answer the, is it always bad to just repress and move forward, uh, with no, your life? No, um, I definitely, I, there's a lot of literature and clinical psychology about the high costs of rumination and excessive rumination. And, um, I absolutely agree that excessive rumination is uh, not health producing. Um, I don't, I think there are people who uh, get problems from totally avoiding issues too, that they need to deal with. Um, so I'd say there's a spectrum, but definitely totally avoiding problems and excessively ruminating, I think are both um, can, can both get people stuck. Yep. So on that kind of balance, right. Uh, there's this perception that 
the generations over time have become more psychologically fragile. Um, hmm. That, and and the answer usually back is well, past generations were repressing a lot of us, and it came out in different ways, and and so now we don't repress it anymore, and therefore we're better off. Um, the, you know, the sort of stereotypical example, right, is grandpa doesn't talk about the war. Um, right. And so one, is it your perception that we are getting more fragile over time as in somebody born in, you know, 2000 is on average more mentally fragile than somebody who was born in 1980 or 1960 or 1920? Um, are people becoming more fragile? Um, yeah, I don't know if good. I, I get this is a place where I don't know if good empirical literature on it. And there, there probably is stuff, um, but it, that that fits with my perception. Yeah, that um, younger people, especially right now, seem to be more fragile than past generations. Yes. I mean, do you have any speculation as to why that is? If it's, you know. Um, if we are sort of going to therapy more than we would have in the past on a whole, like why, why are, and I'm not even, I'm not right. even making the argument that these are like causal, that are causal mechanisms. Maybe we're going, maybe it goes the other way, right? Like we're going to therapy more because we are unable to handle things and feel overwhelmed by life more. Um, but, you know, why do you think that that might be? And I understand that you're, you know, speculating and I, I don't I'm not right, going right, to hold right. you to sort of a, a, a literature <laughs> review of of why you think that is but but why is it that that for example somebody born in the year 2000 just seems like unable to deal much more often unable to deal with the basic sort of bumps and and um, sideways you know elements of of life um, from from the small like you know dealing with being overwhelmed at work to the large like you know, I'm thinking here now of my own generation in the middle of millennials, right? Um, you know, I, I don't think that we, we obviously don't confront death on in the same way, uh, in the same common part of life way that people in 1820 do simply because, I mean, fortunately for all of us, medical, you know, advancements have made it so that we just it, you become the person who confronts death from age five on the regular becomes the unlucky one rather than the norm of the human experience. Um, but I, I guess like, why do you think that the, cause, but the, the difference between, you know, for example, somebody born in 1985 and somebody born in 2000, that, you know, medical science hasn't changed that much in 15 years in terms of infant mortality or anything else. Right. So the, the bigger conditions of life seem, at least in some important ways, uh, equal. And yet there does seem to be this observable gap where people younger are, seem like unable to deal with any of the, the, like the bruises of, of life. Yeah. Well, you said something at the beginning of this that I might want to go back to, which was you kind of, you were saying that maybe you haven't seen a lot of evidence among your friends that therapy is making people happier. And I, I don't, I'll just say this is my own personal view, just speaking uh, as an individual. I, I don't really see the goal of psychotherapy is to make people happy. 
And um, you might actually, of all the schools of therapy, the one that you might be more interested in is called ACT or ACT therapy. Have you ever heard of this? No. no. It stands for acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's actually pretty similar to a lot of Freud's ideas about emotions. And this is, this is it in a nutshell. The human nervous system is built to feel all of the emotions. Pleasure, pain, joy, sorrow, pride, shame, happy, sad, anxiety, anger, desire, fatigue, stress. Those are all built in to our neurobiology. So they're going to come and go throughout our life. And people get stuck, I think, and get developmental illness a lot of times when they don't let things come when they need to come and let them go when they need to go. And so, and rumination might be a way that someone gets really stuck on a feeling and not able to kind of let it go when it's time to let it go. But what happens a lot of times is people pick all those little emotions that they don't want to feel. They don't want to feel anger. They don't want to feel anxiety. They don't want to feel stress or fatigue or, or sadness. And so they pathologize it as um, I need therapy to take away that range of the emotional spectrum for me. And I don't think the goal of therapy is to take that away and make people feel happiness all the time or, or something like that. It's more about restoring balance and having the capacity to feel the range of human feelings and let them go. And little things shouldn't cause huge, you know, if most of the time, little things shouldn't cause huge emotional disruptions. Big things will, you know, get divorced. You, you have this traumatic loss or there, there are things that do hurt and um, you can expect an emotional reaction to. And then there's a lot of things that you got cut off in traffic or something and, and shouldn't, shouldn't derail most people most of the time. So I, I, I think of therapy for the most part along those lines. It's, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a pathway to enlightenment and it's not a pathway to feeling happiness all the time. It's just kind of restoring balance for people who are, who are thrown off um, one way or another. Did so you want to... I think yeah, maybe ahead. I was, I was inaccurate when I, there was, I was being not even inaccurate, just flippant about the, the happiness thing. I, in fact, one of my larger objections and I think you're addressing this to some extent is that I, I think the, the therapeutic concept or culture sometimes uh, pathologizes human suffering um, yes. in a way that I, I, I think is a little bit dystopian even to imagine, right? Um, and, and it causes people, I think, sometimes to talk to each other even in a way that is holding at distance actual connection with other human beings. So the best example... Uh, or even can be manipulative, right? This is more of an example of the latter, but I don't know if you saw the the Jonah Hill text that um, blew up and stuff, right? I, I don't know if you saw that. A little bit. I don't know if yeah, below your line. Yeah. But this is ex-girlfriend released text messages and she called it emotional abuse and was obviously, in my view, not abusive, but it was the opposite. It was like, it was like sort of manipulative and sideways in using all this language about setting boundaries and um, very like therapeutic language of, of how to basically say, well, you know, 
Um, I'm going to talk, but I can't imagine someone in the heat of a moment, like arguing with their significant other, right? Uh, arguing with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife and speaking in this like detached, regulated way. Uh, it seems a little inhuman uh, to yeah. me and actually a barrier to connection. Like sometimes people need to yell at each other, right? Like sometimes they, they yeah. need to, you know what I mean? Like they need to yeah. directly communicate, even if, if, uh, that's like hurtful or painful or whatever, um, they need to, to directly communicate. And, and in those moments, sometimes people say things that they regret, they don't believe like that's obviously true, but even that itself is part of, I don't know how much of the human experience are we now pathologizing if, if people yelling at each other or suffering a great loss or, um, all of these things are things to be sort of regulated and, and, um, correctly processed and i mean is there a correct way to process the understanding that you're going to die one day is there a like <laughs> healthy way to process that or should you rage against it right or, or like i don't these don't seem to me to have obvious normative answers even in terms of what you're aiming for i'm i hear you is that is there a question I'm not I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, these are just I my objections. Just so. No, no, no. I'm <laughs> I'm, I want to respond. I, um, but what, what should I respond to? No. So, okay. Let's let's go with the first idea about the pathology, like pathologizing certain intense human emotions, whether it's suffering or or anger. Um, obviously, and I'm acknowledging there are people who have, you know, issues. Some small percentage of people are unable to deal at all with anger or suffering in a way like if, if you're you know um unable to, to function in life because you're so angry at small things like obviously that's a type right. of pathological behavior and i'm using this almost pathological i'm using as a as sort of neutral word i mean meaning being in a slice of of human behavior that's in the minority and a small minority and has specific characteristics that have specific negative outcomes but often the way that people talk about what they, you know, what they learned in therapy or how they, it's, it's how to process what I see as uh, inevitable suffering in life, for example, it seems almost philosophical. Like they're replacing having an answer either from a philosophical perspective or a theological perspective with, well, this is how I regulate my emotions about it. Well, you know, yeah, and I mean, so in the in the DSM, it, which is the you know the list of psychiatric diagnoses that we use, most disorders are characterized by impairment in functioning or extremely high levels of distress. Those those are the that you know they're both pretty subjective. Those are pretty vague, but it's kind of like if it causes a lot of distress, it might be a mental disorder. If it causes a serious impairment in function, it might be a mental disorder. That's, that's tends to be how they're, they're categorized. You know, this is the system that we have in place for how people get help around these issues. And I do think, you know, people have tried to get help around these types of issues for thousands of years. And, you know, at another, you know, they, they might've gone to the ashram or they climbed the mountain to see the, uh, the guru or whatever. I mean, 
whatever it's a monk or it's somebody who you know it's people have always or a priest or whatever or just somebody and i think there's always been um a desire for help around you know the types of things that people suffer with um the, the question for me is like you know this is the system we have now you know and um i know a lot of uh um i i just i was actually thinking about a, a, a job before I settled on becoming a therapist. I was like, well, maybe I should have a you know, have a religious job. And I talked to different, um, I, t I talked to a different, a bunch of different people. One of them was a rabbi. And, um, and he said, you know, somebody comes to me and they're depressed or they have panic attacks or something. I send them to a therapist. <laughs> I do bar mitzvahs, you know, and uh, I do weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs. And, um, and if somebody wants help with those things, I send them to a therapist. So, you know, I was like, well, I actually wanted to help people with that stuff. And um, that was part of why I went into this field as opposed to the other one. Um, but, um, but the question is like, is it helpful? And I think a lot of times, um, okay. If I, well, let's go back to, we're kind of talking, I'm using the depression example a lot, but somebody's depressed and they're saying, well, what's the point? You know, I'm, I, sure, I don't like my life right now. I'm sad a lot of times. I don't have a lot of energy. Why do I need to go to somebody and spill my guts and tell them I'm sad and then they're just going to stare at me and then tell me to come back the next week and do the same thing? What a waste. But you often don't know where it's going to go. And sometimes I, I hear what you're saying about like just excessive nasal gazing and like, you know, ruminating on how bad everything is and just spinning your wheels and feeling worse and worse and worse. That doesn't, I, I, I hear you, but like sometimes you unpack it and you're like, Oh, I'm depressed in part because I'm not even aware of how self-critical I am. And I'm attacking myself in all of these ways that I don't even believe just reflexively. I'm saying I'm stupid. I fucked up. People don't like me and nobody's going to want to date me or whatever it is that they're saying. And I don't even believe that stuff, but I'm tormenting myself with it. And now that I'm aware of that process, I don't have to buy into it as much. You know, maybe that doesn't cure the depression entirely, but it's an insight that could help. And there are lots of little things like that, that can help a little bit. And it doesn't mean you're never going to feel sad. It doesn't mean you're never going to be self-critical. It's not a solution to everything. And it's not necessary for everybody in society to go through this. But for a lot of people who are depressed, things like that can make things a little bit easier. And, you know, does that mean it's a disease and it's medical or are there better social structures? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think it can be helpful. So I think... Um to the extent I agree with what you're saying, I, th I think it is where, especially it's, it's, it's remarkable to me, the story about, you know, the split between the rabbi, what the rabbi does, what you do. Right. Right. right, um, right. To me, like the purpose of religion, such that it is, is uh, to provide answers to those questions. Now they may not be satisfying to everyone. There's not, they have never been satisfying to me. Um, but it seems like, a lot of this is coming from, so I guess what I'm asking you, is there a relationship um, between uh, 
your metaphysical commitments, and let's call it then the modern term would be worldview, right? Your your normative metaphysical commitments, um, mm-hmm. and the kind of anguish that you might feel on the back end. And we know this is true, at least in some cases, right? Because if even like on the superficial political level that we were talking about before, we know that left-leaning young women uh, self-report the most, and there might be a little problem there too, but self-report like that the most mental illness, right? Whereas like older conservative men report the least of it. Um, right. In, in some of those surveys. So in other words, are at least some percentage, obviously schizophrenia is not downstream of worldview, at least to some extent. I mean, I guess, you know, you could, you could put Nisha, you know, in, in the middle of it, <laughs> like, um, but even something like that, right? I mean, you could stipulate that Nietzsche went insane and Dostoevsky did not because they took different answers. They answered the same questions differently and one set of answers allowed someone to live a sane life not a happy one, but a sane one. And the other set of answers didn't, was just not compatible with living a, a, in a sane way. Um, but let's, let's stipulate that the, some percentage of, of easily identifiable mental illness is genetic, is, is um, physiological, right? But it seems like another big chunk of it, to me, seems actually quite connected to normative worldview commitments that that person has about what what exists you know who am i is there a god is there a good right like and those questions seem to me not the best answered like how how is therapy going to answer those questions for somebody oh like about is there a god i feel like that's part of the some of these questions, like you even said, why am I depressed? Why am I self-critical? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know about that particular example. Actually, I don't have a connection to that one. But like, right. what if somebody is is um, depressed because they feel that their life is meaningless? Well, that's a question that requires all kinds of antecedents and commitments in different directions. Okay, one answer to why is life not meaningless might be like, because... God made you and this is this is the every every creature God makes has a purpose right another answer might be like you know a nihilistic answer that says actually yeah you're you're correct it's not a pathology you are correctly interpreting the world around you yes you you are meaningless and you're going to have to either find or not a reason to persist after that but all of these questions seem to me to be philosophical and not like I don't understand how a a medical construct can actually answer those kinds of questions, but maybe those are not the questions that people come to therapy with. I don't know, but that's, that's what I would think that like, these are the things that make people depressed, anxious, whatever. You know, I love talking about those questions with patients. I don't, they don't happen so often. They, they come up sometimes. Um, uh, But when I talk to them about it, I'm not answering those questions. <laughs> I'm not telling them, yes, there is a God and that's why you have life, a meaningful life and uh, I'll see you next week. I, I would never do that. Um, but, uh, you know, you also don't know, There often with some of these questions, there's a real emotional, um, there's an emotional side angle to it that, that maybe is, maybe it's helpful to explore, maybe it's not, but like, um, you know, they, 
their their feelings about death have to do with ultimate loneliness in the universe, for example. Let's say this is something that they're thinking about about death. We're all we're all fundamentally alone, and uh, and and then you find out that um, you know they they were given they were adopted, you know, and uh, they have this feeling that they've carried with them of being abandoned and. There, there might be a connection between those two things. Um, but my, my job isn't to answer any of that. Um, but I can facilitate uh, a dialogue about it. Um, and sometimes those philosophical answers really do cut cut deep to to emotional stuff um, that's, that's really salient. Um, yeah. Um. So I'm going to ask you a question. One of the most obvious connections that people have made, and I think in the 70s, people like Tom Wolfe, right, or uh, Christopher Lash, and then uh, now I think all in resurgence, uh, Reef, what's his first name? Philip Reef, right? Um, what's your definition of narcissism? And do you think that that's the greatest psychological ill of our current age? Or do you think it's something else or none of the above? Okay, really interesting question. I do think that, I think if you ask 100 therapists what narcissism is, you'll get 200 answers. It's just, it's it's not a well-defined construct. There is a narcissistic personality disorder in the DSM. You know, you can look up what the criteria for it is. Um, so it's a hard thing to talk about because people use that term to refer to a wide constellation of things. I mean, some people will use it in as loose of a way as it's just concerns related to selfhood. <laughs> you know, you, you, you want yourself to hang together and to have a reasonably, you know, functionally positive view of the self to be able to function and it to be coherent to an extent. And maybe that whole constellation of self-related functions are all narcissistic concerns in some sense or another and for other people it's this pathological need to be grandiose and self-important at all times in ways that hurts other people and um you know those are just so far apart that it's hard to talk about i i don't like character i don't like pigeonholing people by their character trait and saying, you know, you're a narcissist, you're a depressive, you're a histrionic, you're this or that. I, I, I don't think about people in those terms. Um, I want to know what's the issue and what are you, what, what's happening? You know, is the issue somebody who maybe you could say the therapy is focused on narcissism and, but their issue is they have trouble tolerating that they make mistakes or have shortcomings or they have trouble empathizing with other people or they have trouble um, admitting when they're wrong or whatever it is. It could be a number or they have trouble sharing or, you know, you could think of all types of things. So then that's the issue. And I don't feel a strong need to label them a narcissist or not, because I, th I think when when people start when once you pigeonhole as a therapist, once you kind of pigeonhole somebody that way it kind of be, becomes hard to see them for the unique individual things that they're struggling with, um, which is more important to me. Um, yeah. So then let me rephrase what 
characteristics um, that become problems for people do you think are the sort of ills of our age? In other words, what, what, because, you know, yes, everybody's an individual, but we, we all, you know, interact in a society with certain cultural influences on us, um, right. certain encouragements. So like one obvious example I would say is, and this is not a sort of psychological DSM sort of example, but, you know, I would say that, for example, um, women's sometimes selfish behavior in relationships is very much like lauded by society now in a way that wasn't true 30 or 40 years ago. And correspondingly sort of stereotypically male selfishnesses uh, like banging your secretary, right. Are very much not tolerated. Um, right. I'm not saying one is better than the other, right. But like <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> one is very much tolerated and put up in lights and, and sort of you go girled. Right. And, and the other, expression of a selfishness right that is male is very much uh, socially uh, ostracized what ills do you think are popular ones um in in the current sort of cultural mix that we live in or what do you see as encouraged traits that maybe are causing difficulties for people that might land them in their in your office yeah um okay this is something I've been thinking about for a while and I've talked about it some, we, um, but it's, I think I, I'm concerned about people being too focused on the external and not enough aware of the internal and um, both in a sense of like constantly having external stimulation and not having time, like kids not having time for free play, kids not having time to daydream uh, unstructured play, fantasy, reflection, uh, unstructured environments. And like, and I think there is a component to it that I think is spiritual of having room for the internal and the subtle, um, as opposed to a kind of focus on external stimulation. And I think what you might be getting at maybe this is what you're thinking of as narcissism. If I'm, I think there's a preoccupation with self image with the image and the way that you're perceived by others, almost like an over identification with the, the image that you're presenting to others and how that's perceived by others. And it's almost like that's, that's me is the person in the photos on Instagram is me. And there's almost like an alienation from the sense that who, who we are, I might, one might say, is like actually this ineffable, you know, perceiving, living, subjective being that has, is, that changes and has contradictory desires and multiplicity and isn't entirely coherent. Um, and it's like we, we're, we're maybe becoming alienated from that side of ourselves as we're kind of becoming more over-identified with, with self-image um, and anxious about the self-image and anxious about how this is perceived by people. And um, I, I do see, I do think all of those are themes. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like, maybe that drives the, the constant, I could see that very quickly becoming tyrannical, both in the personal relations and in politics, right? On the personal level, I could see, you know, if, if you 
have that desperate need to be defined by the way that people reflect back at you, you know, who you are, um, you know, you can demand that all your, all your friends, right. Um, or, you know, your, your partner or whatever, like needs to reflect that back to you and you can become tyrannical and demanding it. Uh, but even more so on the societal level, right. If, if, uh, all this talk about like erasure, right. (laughs) As though if somebody like doesn't agree that biological sex is mutable, right. For example, to give one example, right. Like we've, you don't exist, right. You you don't exist. um, Cause that's always what I always think that's a very revealing phrase on the part of trans activists, right. It's like trans people exist. Well, I'm not denying that you exist. I'm denying that if you're biologically a man, that you're a woman. That's what I'm denying. I'm not denying that you exist and you have these feelings and, you know, that's fine. Like, (laughs) but there is this, like, there's the, the framing of it is you don't think I exist, which is a very strange and revealing way to put it. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. No. Yeah. Or related to that somehow. Yes. Um, that, well, like when we talk about identity, identity politics or ident what is identity and what are the features of identity that mean the most they're usually the most superficial external things these crude group categories it's it's actually very far from what we really are um and there's almost this kind of um it's a it's a misidentification really of like i'm the image. I am the image, as opposed to which we're, we're not. Like that's like that. The image is is that we're actually something. We're living beings that change and are distinct from from that. Um, but uh, yeah, it does seem like there's there's more of a preoccupation with that. At the same time, that there's a losing of a connection to like the. And I think that's partly, you know. I think people are looking for these category identity categories and group categories to climb onto and to say, I'm that thing over there. You know, it's, 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 it's the other way around, you know? Yeah. And I'm going to have to think about that one for a while, but uh, since I've, I've taken up an hour of your time, I'm, I'm going to okay. let you go. Um, so if you want to, uh, interact more with um, Andrew's work, you can check out the Open Therapy Institute and, and his pieces for The Federalist, for Wall Street Journal, for some other uh, outlets as well. Um, I don't think you're on Twitter, which is probably a healthy sign for a therapist. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, but thank you so much, uh, Andrew Hartz, for, for coming on High Noon and sharing this hour. Thanks so much. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.